as you kind of ramp up and you grow that much uh, you'll start becoming cognizant of your cost right because uh, especially if you're doing it on the cloud uh, they provide a lot of sharp uh, sharp knives <laughs> and uh, as you kind of play with them you can cut yourself and bleed yourself <laughs> to death uh, in terms of money you're listening to gradient descent a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world i'm your host lucas bewald Ananta Cancharella is VP of Engineering at Lyft, where he heads up the Level 5 software team, working on building the self-driving car. Prior to Lyft, he spent time at Dropbox, building products that helped teams to collaborate. And before that, he worked at Facebook, building mobile software at scale, delivering core experiences like Newsfeed on mobile phones. I'm super excited to talk to him. I was thinking it's kind of cool the way you, I assume that the goal is to make Level 5 automation then? Level five automation. Yes, Automated that driving. is our that is our aspiration. Uh, but I'll take level four. <laughs> I was actually I was wondering how you. Um, I've, I don't think I've ever been part of a team with such a sort of like huge singular technical ambition. Like I, I was wondering how you kind of break that problem down to constituent parts. Like how you think about what the yeah. you know like weekly KPI should be when you have this yeah, gigantic yeah, yeah. goal. No, honestly, like this is this feels for me like uh, how I've always worked. I don't know why. Because uh, I guess like you know I started my career at Windows, uh-huh. and it was like a few. By the time I left, it was like you know well into tens of thousands of people working, and and so all working towards one product, singular focus on one product, right? So yeah. it's, it's this is obviously way smaller than uh, what Windows was, but it's the same idea. And uh, so now it's a good question. Like, what does it mean, and how does it break down? So uh, it, usually in a project like this, um, you're gonna have so many different skill sets. So ML is just one of them. Usually, when people think about self-driving cars, like they mostly think about like the AI part of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the way we kind of think about it is that uh, you're gonna have. So if, first of all, you have to kind of think about the work that we do as in two parts: the work that happens in the cloud, the work that happens in the car, right? Uh-huh. The code that runs in the car and code that runs in the cloud. And uh, the code that runs in the car, you can think about it as, if you really want to simplify it, like it's kind of uh, two parts or maybe three parts. So at the lowest level, you have the operating system. So again, if you want to compare it with, like, say, a traditional development environment, like, you know, imagine you have your OS that you're targeting. And on top of that OS, there will be a runtime mm-hmm. that you're going to write. You know, if it's Android, it's like Java or whatever, right? So there'll be an equivalent runtime that you want. And then on top of the runtime, you'll have your applications, right? That's how you would write a typical one. So it's a similar idea here. So you have your OS that is running on the car hardware. Uh, now the car hardware is way more complicated than anything that like you've seen on the phones or PCs. Mm-hmm. It, itself, we call we say it's like a data center on wheels. Uh, so there's you, you typically a car has a lot of computers in it, but the ones that uh, some of them we write software for, some of them are like come with the car, and they're all on a gigantic network. So you run, uh, so the most of the code that we write runs on what we call uh, high performance compute. But again, different companies do thing, different things. Like, so they, they will all, maybe they will factor the workload in different ways. So, you know, like you can imagine the multiple smaller computers or one large computer and one small computer, there's different configurations possible. Um, and uh, you just have to figure out how you're gonna break down your workload. And then on each of those computers, like you're going to run like a, a fairly, depending on how big it is, like you're going to run a fairly beefy operating system or a possibly even like a no operating system. 
if it is like a microcontroller. Oh, I see. And yeah. uh, and then uh, sometimes like there'll be embedded uh, processors, and then you'll run a very very thin microkernel. And then on top of that, uh, you we have like a framework that we build uh, that's basically enables uh, components that are the software components that are running on that one computer to uh, work with each other. A good equivalent of that is in the open source world, you would have run into something called ROS. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, very yeah, similar to that. Uh-huh. And then, uh, but you can imagine they can also communicate across the computers on the network. Uh-huh. And uh, then on top of that, you write your uh, the functionality that actually makes it autonomous. But then you can imagine like that's just one, but you could also have a calibration functionality. There's a bunch of other little pieces of functionality that you would write. Uh, but the autonomous itself kind of breaks down into your classical robotics a paradigm right sense plan and act so sensing is basically what in our world we call it perception uh, then you have a, a block of code that predicts how the world is going to change and uh, there's a block of code that basically uh, figures out where i, I am within the world with, uh, within the world it's called localization then there's another block of code once it knows okay this is what the world looks like this is where i am at and uh, this is how the world is going to change in the next few seconds. How am I going to act? And mm-hmm. uh, what's the plan? And then it sends it down to the actuators. Um, and that's the control part of it. So uh, so all of those, all of, so those are all the kind of components that work on the car. And now there's a lot of code that actually runs on the cloud um, for development reasons, as well as uh, like even during deployment, like you do. Um, so there are teams that actually build the infrastructure because even though we are part of Lyft and Lyft is like a very much a cloud company, uh, the kind of workloads that the ride sharing part of Lyft does is very different than the kind of workloads that we run. Right. So the amount of data that we collect or the amount of compute that we need is very, very uh, at a different scale and um, uh, requirements tend to be very different. So we have a, a teams that actually think about What's the data, uh, uh, the the data part of uh, that infrastructure? And there are teams that think about the compute part of the infrastructure. Um, and then they, we also have to think about testing all of these. So testing, obviously, you cannot, a unit test, you'll do whatever with your code. But then there's also the other side of the testing, which is like on the road. Uh, you build everything and deploy it. But then there's a whole lot of other testing that needs to happen in between, so simulation is one example uh, where you try to run the software that you built that you will eventually deploy on your car uh, somewhere in the cloud. And then you, we also have uh, rigs that we build. These are called, uh, we call them test beds, but you know, another term that you will often hear is hardware in the loop testing. So you build, uh, depending on which team it is, like, you know, you'll, like embedded team will build their own like smaller versions of hardware. Uh, then there'll be full system tests so there are different types of these test beds that could mm-hmm. be built. And uh, you can think think of them as like mini data centers that we have. And uh, you run the code on those as well. So um, we treat them as if it's like another cloud. Um, and uh, so we have teams that do all of that. And then there's a teams, teams that work on uh, simulation. So all of these things eventually come together. And the end of the day, like it all gets packaged up into software that is deployed on the co- in the car. And then we test that car on the road, and then those metrics are used to drive work on the software that runs on the car. But quite often, it can also impact stuff that happens in the cloud. Like, for example, if you change your sensor and you capture a lot more data mm-hmm. uh, per hour, 
that means you may have to potentially replan like uh, your uh, storage capacity you right know? right so things like that so so i mean i, guess I don't know did i answer your question there <laughs> well i have so many more questions actually yeah, yeah. Um, no i mean I'm, think, I mean I'm thinking like i guess you're at the point where you sort of have you probably have some metric like how long you can drive without intervention that you're trying to optimize for or something mm-hmm. like that um and then but then do you like break it down by teams of like we need to make our like perception 10 percent better yeah. or something like that or how do, how do you think about that yeah 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 so we each team has so it kind of breaks down right like so there's a top level metric for the overall system performance and then uh and do you i have do that right is things. it like time between intervention or how do you, is that the right metric to so California DMV reporting, that's what uh, they look at. Like, so they look at, uh, it, it's called MPI, miles per intervention. So uh-huh. how many miles do you drive before you have, you have an intervention? So that's a very common metric that people track. Uh-huh. Uh, but the um, but then there are so many other metrics that you have to think about. Like, you know, end-to-end latency is one example. How long does it take from, say, the time you your camera captured a frame till the time that you reacted to it? So that's one example. Yeah, right. So you have to think of, there's a number of other metrics that matter. But of course, you can argue that all of them come down into an intervention, like some human had to intervene. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's kind of how, like, you know, generally the industry is standardized around today. But, you know, it's very controversial because what is an intervention? How do you report it? All uh, that yeah. is like, uh, it's up for debate. But then we uh, internally, we track a number of other, like, broader system level metrics. And you can do two things. One is like you can apportion, let's say you do MPI, right? The mm-hmm. miles per intervention. You could apportion MPI to different components and say like, hey, uh, was the M- the reason the intervention happened because we misperceived? Was the reason the intervention happened because our map was wrong? Right. You can kind of apportion those. Uh-huh. So, and then they kind of go down as far as they can go down. That's it, right? But then really that's just only part of the problem. So each metric, each component will also have its own separate metric like so perception for example uh they may want to track like uh the uh, precision and recall of seeing different agents um uh, what's the precision recall for seeing say a pedestrian or a car or a bus and then you can further like uh, subdivide that like what do how good is my precision flash recall at uh, 50 meters at 100 meters at you know like 500 meters you know so you kind of have to uh, so there's a lots and lots of metrics that eventually break down at the component level uh, that, uh, that it comes down to at every component. And how, how do you allocate your resources? Like, is the perception team a lot bigger than the planning team or like, what's the, like roughly, like where does stuff That's a go? very good question. Uh, I'd say like, um, they are mo- most r- roughly similar between the two teams, but uh, I don't think that there's a perfect science in terms of how you want to allocate it. Uh, you kind of have to look at the stage of the pro- uh, pro- uh, project you are in and the maturity, because sometimes each project, uh, each part of the stack will come to mit- will move at different paces, you know, like mm-hmm. depending upon what they're building. So uh, let's say you're doing something which is highly machine learning dependent. So first you have to I'm talking about like when you're starting from scratch, like in steady state, like, of course, it's very different. When you're starting from scratch, like when you're uh, beginning, um, you first will may have to spend quite a bit of time, like building your machine learning infrastructure, data gathering, all of that. So those teams, you probably want to like populate first uh, Mm -hmm. before you start throwing models at it. And maybe you can get away with like a relatively rudimentary team, Mm -hmm. uh, a smaller team, like of just a few core experts uh, in the 
perception part. And then once that kind of is ready, then you start putting more people on that area. And uh, maybe you don't have to like work so hard uh, through additional people on the infrastructure side of things. Mm-hmm. And once it's only like once you start like unlocking the ability to see the world, then you can start doing more and more complicated maneuvers and planning. Mm-hmm. And then you start like pushing more into the planning world. So, and then you'll start hitting bottlenecks on that side. And then you'll kind of say, oh yeah, shit, I need to like add a few more people to unlock this thing in another area. So you, it kind of is very, very dynamic. So I wouldn't say like there's like a one uh, standard formula through which uh, we do resource allocation here. I see. But is it sort of like where you're seeing the most like actually interventions being caused by, or is it like sort of where you see ah, the most opportunity uh, for improvement? I think interventions uh, in a steady state world, uh, uh, like let's say there are a lot of bugs, uh, ignore interventions. I mean, if you just like replace mm-hmm. interventions with bugs, it's the same problem in any software. Like where do you have your biggest bugs? Right. Uh-huh. And sometimes uh, throwing more people at the problem is the right answer. And uh-huh. sometimes it is not the right answer. In fact, it's the wrong answer. So you may want to like figure out putting the right people into that. Maybe you don't have the right expertise. So mm-hmm. it's not always clear that the resource allocation goes uh, is directly proportional to the number of bugs that you have. I see. That makes sense. And like at, at this at this moment, is there a particular part of the chain that feels like the most challenging for you that feels like there's the most room to improve? I think that all like if you look at like the state of understanding and state of research in this uh, space, uh-huh. uh, the place where there is a lot of scope for improvement is in the area of prediction and uh, say behavior planning. Mm. So this is an area where like there's still a lot of active development going on. Uh, the industry is like changing fast. Just recently, I saw a really cool paper from uh, Waymo's research team. Um, so there's like a lots of activity going on in that world. So I would say that's the area which is developing quite a bit. So this is like predicting where like another car is going to go, where like a pedestrian. Yeah, another agent. What will happen in the world uh, in the next over the next few seconds? Who should I pay attention to? What should I watch out for? You know, all the things that as a human we take it for granted. Right. So those kind of problems. Um, so so like inside of the car, the when it's when it's operating right now, like how many different models are, are running approximately oh boy i don't i'm not sure i can tell you the actual number but uh, in terms of ml like we have so many uh, different ways of deploying these models right like so there's a uh, the on the car you deploy them and huh? then in the cloud like you have a couple of different ways of deploying them and if you look at lift at large like we have uh, you can uh, including rideshare there's so many different ways like there are times when some teams at Lyft like will just run that model on their desktop uh, once in a while, uh, right. pretty ad hoc. There are uh, online uh, uh, the the online loops that are running, like you know, active learning loops. Uh-huh. Then uh, there are like um, online learning that is happening. Uh-huh. Um, then there, there are uh, they're all running in the cloud, right? Then there are models that run on a phone. Uh-huh. Then there are models that run in the car. So we have models pretty much everywhere. <laughs> But I guess you're responsible for the ones that run in the car and the cloud for, for yeah. Maps, and right? we also help the rideshare team as well. So there's a few people on our team like who help because we have a lot of uh, pretty amazing machine learning people. So we also help the core part of it. So I we do have visibility into like uh, how they do it also. So in fact, sometimes our teams uh, work on the cell phone models. Oh, that's cool. Or like the offline models. Yeah. 
Wow, it's it's cool to talk to someone that's that's working on so many models at the same time. I'm I'm really curious about like your infrastructure for all this. Like how how often do these models update? Are they like is it like <laughs> it all daily? depends. It completely depends uh, on uh, the, which one you're talking about. Um, right, right. So if you're doing the mapping ones, um, that's really dependent upon like uh, the why you're using the model. Like so sometimes like these models are used to help the operators like uh, uh-huh. if you know like as they work on uh, the new techniques uh, new ui techniques or whatever like where there's some additional assist they're providing they may uh-huh. update it when that time comes otherwise like generally they work it's okay uh, because they're assisting humans as opposed to uh, doing it on their own uh, so those models don't update as uh, frequently but the models that are operating on the car uh, you do that depending upon like the, the uh, depending upon like what you are addressing and like w- which area that you are trying to improve. So right. let's say like you're, you know you are working in say winter, and oh. uh, you see a lot of uh, vapor or smoke much more visible. So there'll be like some parts of the code that are more impacted by all of that. So you'll see those iterating quite fast. Uh, in general, though, like uh, these models tend to get like uh, trained and iterated upon on almost a continuous basis, like the ones which go on the car. And I guess like one thing that I re- remember being kind of an issue, like did these models feed into each other? Like I remember yeah. like, when I was building models, like there's a big versioning problem of like one changes and the downstream ones um, need to update. Like how, do you actually like then retrain everything downstream from a model if you change like an upstream model? How do you keep track of that? So okay, so the they, they, the models do feed into each other, so that ha- does happen. So this is where I, I would say that since I'm not day-to-day involved in this work, like uh, I don't know the specific details about how the team manages it. But the way uh-huh. they, um, they way they do that is I don't think that you have to go and retrain the downstream models. W- uh-huh. The way we think about it is that you will have your model metrics, right? So you'll train your model, you'll get like a bunch of metrics around that model, but that's not enough. Like so, you have to kind of look at downstream metrics also. So because quite often those are those tend to be the trickiest bugs also. Like so you'll kind of train your model and it all looks good in terms of the metrics and it's all working fine. You deploy it in the car and then you'll see like the behavior change quite a bit. Right. You know, I don't know, like the car may decide to brake more often or it may, I don't know, do something different. And uh, then you have to kind of debug that because the model's behavior has impacted something downstream. So then you have to kind of debug that. Uh, so uh, you don't. It's not necessary that you have to retrain those downstream models. Like you may just like want to go and figure out where the interaction is happening. I but see. there are a few things you do have to be very careful about. Uh, the you know like the validation set that you use to validate this model, and that and the training set that you do use for the uh, the model downstream. You have to be very careful of keeping them all separated, and hopefully there's no overlap. Uh, otherwise, like you may introduce some weird artifacts. So those things like the team has to be very careful about. Is it? Do you think it's harder with these kinds of like this this modeling stuff? A lot of people have talked about that, like predicting timelines is is much more difficult. Have, have you found that to be the case, or the predicting timelines? Timelines of like improvements. Like I feel like software is already hard, right? Yeah. But with it, with the models, it almost seems like it might be unknowable to to know like how like you know how we get like X. Ex- percent improvement like do you give your team goals where where you'll say like look i want to see like you know a 10 percent improvement on this you know this accuracy metric or that's how they they, they set themselves uh, goals for improving it 
mm-hmm. i think ultimately like it's the same with any software like so you set yourself a goal but just because it's machine learning doesn't mean that it's a new problem uh-huh. the problem has got to do with the fact that you really don't know uh, the perfect solution and right. you can't like really estimate uh, what it will take for you to get to that perfect solution so the way you do that is uh, by series of experiments like by iteration uh-huh. um because if you know exactly what to write then why will you can pretty accurately estimate the time and sometimes sure. that's the case like in uh, say like you know like oh yeah i need to i don't know refactor this code so you know roughly how long it will take and you have test cases around you can test it so you know like all your unknown unknowns all of those things are taken care of yeah so if so you become more and more predictable over time that's basically what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. basically what happens is that as you keep working on the problem you start having a better idea about uh, how long it will take uh, because you start you started developing intuition about that particular area mm-hmm. so like um, then you you probably have unit tests or like integration tests or some other tests that help you guide and focus on the right areas and uh, carve out the noise so mm-hmm. then you tend to kind of get a lot more um, predictable in in the work that you do then after that like if you change your model you come in with a new model um you know how many experiments you need to run like you know like uh, how to scan i mean then at the point is like throwing money at the problem you know you parallelize it and you uh, uh, you do a lot more work uh but you you are getting more and more predictable over time just because like you built all this intuition and all this collateral to test so i would say that uh, going back to your question uh, are they predictable definitely not at the outset but mm-hmm. as they start working on it they get better and better more accurate about it in terms of how much they can and this is even like predicting improvements like incremental improvements because uh, i would say more like let's say they are trying to uh, fix issues Mm-hmm. um oh i see because yeah so then they tend to get like more and more predictable uh, predict predictable about that now if they're bringing in if they say like oh they set themselves a goal of saying i'm going to improve it by x percentage mm-hmm. um uh, improvement so the best way they can do that is by running a whole bunch of experiments and see like how fast they can come so even that like if your infrastructure is better and you have good uh, set of tests and all that you can get incrementally better but i don't think that it's any different than any other software development that you can get super predictable with more well i guess like one question or one thing that some people say is different or that i imagine is different is that like like when you think about like testing these models before you you put them into production do you test them against like a set of unit tests where it's like i i insist that the model does this or that the car does this in this situation or is it more like in overall um accuracy of like i want it to kind of you know make the right decision you know 99% of the time like h- how do you think about that because aren't so these you, models somewhat inherently um un- unpredictable or or they're not always going to do exactly the same thing right right so what ha- so you you have to okay so the way it works is that like you have a model and you will have a certain uh i'm talking about perception models because like different sure. if you if you are doing something else downstream in some other area and planning it's very different um the you will have a certain metrics uh, that you reached today mm-hmm. okay and then what you do is um obviously you're working to go beyond that metric mm-hmm. right 
so you try to you can identify that as like as part of your model development like you mm-hmm. develop it you have the model results uh, but that's not enough so you then have to do like some level of integration testing mm-hmm. uh, you put it all together and then you see like hey how how's the downstream metric let's say if it's perception so mm-hmm. the output of perception that like really planning would consume is like a, what we call tracks so these are basically objects over time that uh-huh. you track over time so you have to get those tracking metrics uh, improved or better or impacted in one way or another uh-huh. in those areas uh, and then when you put that in the car then you know like the top level metrics that you have you know like has the uh, how's the car behaving like in whether it is driving is it comfortable is it uh, uh, is it safe Uh-huh. So whatever metrics that you track for any of those things, so you have to kind of get that right. So you kind of have to like go through this entire journey. Like so, it's not like one uh, you just tune the model once and then it works. And are you able to like run these tests like every time there's a new model, or do you kind of like try to pass the first test and then sort of expand out? Yeah, yeah, you have to run through the entire gamut uh, if you do something brand new. Have you seen do you have any interesting like examples of something that sort of improved the the local test but made the the more Yeah yeah I mean, there's, there's a bunch of examples the thing is I don't know what I can tell you uh fair uh, enough <laughs> Yeah yeah I mean there are there are all these cases like where you'll see the interaction between uh the model the, say the upstream model say in the perception and what happens in the planning side um I mean, I can tell you as a friend, but maybe I sure, should sure. put it up there on on the okay. No, uh, on the no clip. worries. You know, like uh, I I was just giving you the example of uh, that uh, one where we had the. Uh, I was telling about you know like in winter, like you have lot more smoke that mm-hmm. you have to deal with. So you we could see that like the model performance was pretty good, but like when we integrated it, it didn't work right. And so then we had, we could have, we had to go back and see there was some inter- interaction going on between like the. Uh, the upstream model and the downstream model that caused this problem so we have to debug these these kind of things happen all the time uh-huh. so the team over time has become much more rigorous about all these things so they any time they do this there's a lot of automation built in they test all of these things and uh they uh, yeah so they have to go through the whole thing i see it's like when you see teams improve models Is it is it typically that they've like collected more different data or kind of changed the data pipeline or like improved the the model itself? Like, do you have a sense of like what's or I guess like what's... a lot of time. Most often, you'll see like the improvements happen with the right data. Interesting. The it's right less data. the model architecture. Yeah, it's less often that the model architecture itself has to be changed. Got it. But is it is it like an ML team itself that's like asking for different types of data sets? Like, do they kind of control that process, or is there like a data team? So, no, no, we don't. Okay, so this is another big uh, thing that we've been, um, I would say, somewhat religious about at level five. Uh-huh. We don't have a notion of like engineering team and a science team or a data team. Mm. Um, we just have a perception team. So, uh, I think like. Uh, I, I'll tell you my mental model around like M- ML. I think ML is a skill. Um, so it's like anything you know. You know how to write Python, great, or you know how to write C plus plus. That's a skill. So ML is a skill, but a skill alone is not enough. Like mm-hmm. so, you need domain expertise. So 
just because you know how to write python may be good enough for some things but if you are trying to build i don't know some complex insurance thing like you probably need to understand insurance mm-hmm. uh, so um how do you divide the domain knowledge from the skill in mm-hmm. some cases you can like and you see that happening like so you'll have pms write a spec and then they'll give you something and say like go implement it right I, but more more often you will see that like the engineer has to like really ramp up and truly understand like what the actual problem is because if they have to debug something and they have to kind of really understand what is going on it's the same thing in ml so if mm-hmm. so we try to kind of have we have a team that is called a prediction team so their job is to predict so they uh, so we don't have a difference between like some data scientist or a data team and like an engineer so it's the same people who have the domain expertise and have ml skills and that's kind of how we've been operating so far oh, that's cool so so all of your teams sort of have a mix of skill sets yeah. yeah so we i i've seen this like a this seems to be a pretty big debate in the industry like you know there'll be this oh should we have a science and an engineering team mm-hmm. idea so the mental model i've come up with is like job of a science is to develop knowledge the art what they produce Mm-hmm. uh their production is knowledge and mm-hmm. uh the job of an engineering team is an artifact in most cases uh we are actually building an artifact we are building a product so mm-hmm. in which case i kind of see that science versus engineering divide to be less germane in these areas you can have a research team their job is to produce knowledge mm-hmm. and that's okay but when it comes to like developing a product uh i've always found that it is better to have Uh, the domain knowledge and the skill people together and ideally if if you can find the unicorns which are both that's awesome so but right. you'll have very few of those but then you kind of have to like uh, uh bracket them with people with the right skills does that, that make sense. sense no totally yeah i mean yeah. i i we see the same thing with a lot of the companies we work with and i i do i think if i was if i was in charge i think i mm-hmm. would uh lean the same way as you of you know make sure that um Yeah, make sure the people doing ML are right inside the teams that mm. are actually trying to accomplish something. Right, and now coming back to the data question that you ask. Yeah. So, um, if you are, if you are a domain specialist, mm-hmm. right, you already have a very good intuition about what is the right data that you want. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and like we just said, like most of the problems seem to be about finding the right data mm-hmm. than the right model. So. so you have this like nice property where the team just knows like what what is the right data to seek got it that makes sense is it challenging for you to deploy models into production like i've i've never had to deploy into um hardware like is that a, is that a challenging step for you like do you find sometimes the model doesn't perform the same way you expected when it's actually inside the hardware or I think the so biggest worried. difference between uh, what uh, is say like when you are building it for like a cloud service versus what you are we are doing here mm-hmm. is is that the model may, they may be like a a transform after training right mm-hmm. generally and the transform after training you could say quantization or something like that right uh, so you have to have develop a good understanding about that uh, about the impact of that on mm-hmm. the model the other thing that becomes really important like when you're deploying it and this is no different for mobile apps also uh, where you deploy uh, models on your mobile phone mm-hmm. is that like you have to be really careful about uh, power and latency mm. so you have to like really be rigorous about your op count how much time does it take so all of that uh, you have to think about have you built infrastructure to to actually monitor these models as yes. they run in production 
Yeah. So actually, we try. Uh, we have an internal framework uh, that, uh, in fact, I was just watching their video just before this. Um, they were doing a demo because they just built a new one, and uh -huh. that takes care of all of these for you. Like, so it'll kind of like do the stats and everything. Like, uh, uh, when you are um, building and training your model and running your experiments. And in fact, we dump all of that probably in uh, your tool. <laughs> cool. Do you yeah. um? Do you look for uh, some people talk to us about like worrying about feature drift? Like, would you notice if like a sensor broke or something? Like, if the model's getting a different kind of data, is that something you look for? Or is it mainly just like latency of the model? Oh, I see. So you're talking about like uh, the model, some strange behavior that yeah, if it gets uh, like a weird situation where it's it seems to be struggling. Yeah. So there, there could be so many problems, right? Like, so it could yeah, be sure. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it could be. Some sensor has uh, gone bad. Um, uh, I was just thinking about something specific here. Um, yeah, th those things happen. But like the way we find out a bunch of these things is that increasingly, like we depend on something we call unsupervised metrics. So mm -hmm. you know, like imagine, like what's the rough size of a bicycle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't right? know what, like a meter or two. Two meters? Uh, oh no, no, it's going to be. I mean, width probably, but like width, length, yeah. probably a lot more than that uh, than a meter. Oh, oh yeah, I guess um, you're right. Maybe a three yeah. or four. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but if you see like a 50 meter bicycle, then you <laughs> probably there's probably something wrong with it, right? Right. So I'm just right. giving that as a very extreme example, but uh, you can imagine that uh, there's a lot of such heuristics that you could put together and mm -hmm. uh, track. And uh, if you start seeing like weird things happening out of that, that enables you to catch like lots of crazy bugs. And sometimes that's a really good way of catching long tail issues as well, because you may not, it may not result in a disengagement, right. uh, but you may see some weird behavior or it may trigger a disengagement, but it is probably not often enough that like, you know that that's a problem, uh, right, important right, problem right. to focus on. So, so we increasingly, we depend on all these like unsupervised metrics where the data comes in, then you compute all these various interesting statistics, and then you figure out what is actually going on, and then you go back and develop it. So, well, it's so interesting. I was, it's funny. I was just looking at Jira tickets, you know, for my company, and mm -hmm. uh, I was like, when you, if you see like one thing wrong, does that like warrant a Jira ticket? Like, if you see one bicycle that's like that's too big, will you actually like file a ticket against that, or how do you? Yeah, um, you, you should. You should. I mean, all of these things should be like filed in a ticket. And uh, if it is that glaringly obvious, uh -huh. uh, then yeah, and you have the time to do it, uh, to take a look at it, you will. So It'll be it's like literally one a, example where this thing yeah, is wrong, yeah. we're going to take it. So, yeah, and again, this has got nothing to do with self-driving cars. I mean, we used to have similar problems in Windows. You know, like there'll be some weird one-off thing that you saw and yeah. uh, we would record it. And uh, then next thing you know, like if it's a... Uh, some code changes that suddenly things tends to pop up and then you're like, oh yeah, I've seen it in these environments and these situations. And then you kind of go and like track it. So I right, think it's right, important right. to, anytime you see something anomalous, you, you just file it. And uh, hopefully like, you know, um, you have more context that you capture and then it'll help you debug. And do you have a team that's tasked with looking for that? Or is that like kind of everybody's looking for those things? Uh, uh, so we have, we have a team that uh, like obviously a lot of our reports come from the drivers driving the road. Uh -huh. But then um, we also have to uh, have additional people to go back and like look at the data and 
see if there's something weird going on. Uh, they're not necessarily engineers. We call them operate operations. Uh-huh. So they kind of scan and like take a look at these things. And of course, like engineers also like you know run into these uh, you know interesting cases and they may actually look at it as well. But there's so much data coming in um, that uh, which one do you look at like and how do you prioritize? That really becomes a more interesting problem. Yeah, it sounds incredibly challenging. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these are by the way, this is a problem of like any software that has scale, <laughs> right? So in our case, uh, like, I mean, I've had, again, like the uh, luck to work on uh, major products that operated at scale. And it's the same problem, like uh, whether you're running like Newspeed at Facebook or, you know, like you're running like uh, some issues in Windows or like you're running a car on the road for thousands of miles. Yeah. Uh, So then you'll get like lots and lots of reports. And that's the issue of diversity. And yeah, I guess these are just issues of sort of complexity and scale. Yeah, it's a complexity and scale problem, right? Like, so if it's an extremely simple problem, you know, you have a sanitized test track and you're running your car in that, then yeah, right. it's like probably you can be very selective about what you do and be very rigorous. But when you're running it on the road, anything can happen. Right. And it's kind of like, you know, you run um, uh, like, your operating system on any kind of PC anybody built, and it, you still have to figure out what's happening. And so you've, um, you've, I guess you've been you've been at Lyft for three years almost now. Yeah. And and the organization must have grown quite a bit in that time. I'm I'm kind of curious oh, how, yeah. how processes have just changed as as the organization has grown and things have solidified. A lot, right? Like so, um, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, there are teams which have uh, were non-existent and then they've kind of uh, been built and then now they were at, they're at scale. Like, I mean, I would say the current perception team is one of those, like, which is now operating at scale. But then there are still some new teams that are forming uh, and and it almost feels like they're doing things which were, uh, say, a perception team or some other team was doing it at their beginning. So, but of course, they have a lot more guidance now because there are other teams that have path broken for them and uh, they get through it. Um, a few things happen. One is like as you kind of get like a more um, a bigger scale as the organization is grown. In the beginning, we would not care about like uh, where the training was happening. You know, like mm-hmm. the engineer would train it on their desktop, uh, the the workstation that they had. Uh, it would be like that. You know, like as the team started growing and uh, more engineers started coming in and uh, reproducibility and all of that started becoming a real problem because multiple people are working on the same thing. Mm-hmm. So then you start becoming much more rigorous in your process. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's fine. That'll work only like if you have maybe like a four of them working together. But then once you grow beyond that, grow beyond that, like uh, process won't fix it or like mutual agreements won't fix it. So you probably should be building a framework to help you standardize that process and like just make you not worry about all the moving parts. So that's why, uh, and then after that, you'll find that like the framework doesn't last you. Mm-hmm. And then you'll write a new framework for the new scale of problems that you run into. And we've gone mm-hmm. through all of that. Uh, then another thing that will happen is like, as you kind of ramp up and you grow that much, uh, you'll start becoming cognizant of your cost, right? Because uh, especially if you're doing it on the cloud, uh, they provide a lot of sharp uh, sharp knives. And uh, as you kind of play with them, you can cut yourself and bleed yourself <laughs> to death uh, in terms of money. 
and uh, so again like uh, you have to be, you start becoming very very careful about uh, and you kind of try to build your uh, ml frameworks or whatever maybe it's not just ml but even simulation mm-hmm. uh, you start building your frameworks to help keep that in check uh, then you start becoming very very rigorous about your data partitioning and you have to have versioning and you track all of them in like a in a tool and you probably want a custom tool which is kind of why how we ended up like uh, you know building our own analytics tool internally to track a number of these things and then you start getting even more like to track all your experiment data and then you you built in weights and biases uh, then you start like running into time problems you know you do more and more complicated uh, models and then you want to get done with your experiments faster and then you start getting into distributed training and you know we've gone through this entire journey i'm sure there's more <laughs> Yeah, what's next? What's <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure there's more. I'm sure if I talk to somebody at Google, they will they probably gone like even further than a lot of the things you've done. Well, thanks. That was well said. Um we we always close with two questions. I'm kind of curious how you're going to mm. answer these. Um so one is like um it's machine learning specific, but maybe you could expand it to autonomous vehicles. And I guess what's what's one underrated aspect of machine learning or AVs that you think people should pay more attention to than they do? i noticed that there's a tendency to think of it as just as a skill and it's like uh, you throw data at it and then the you train and it gets better and you can do that over and over again and then you may be able to get a good result but i always go back to the idea that like one very underrated aspect of machine learning is that like it has to be coupled with domain knowledge you really have to like have a good understanding about like what problem you are solving and have a good understanding of the domain in fact i would say spend quite a bit of time like really understanding the data that you're going to get and then because i said right the right data is more important than like a lot of data uh, you actually there was this interesting case for us like where we made some change and i we cut down our data usage by half uh, it became way cheaper for us to even like end up mach- model become more accurate mm. so um so that's what you get by like actually genuinely understanding and i think that's i would say i don't i don't hear too much about uh, this no, uh, the domain knowledge mm-hmm. i think that's something that i would say is uh very important in this area uh especially with machine learning but you could argue it's true for any anything but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um All right, well said. All right, so here's our, our last question is um and you you've actually deployed several um serious machine learning products um at scale. And just what what's been like the biggest challenge in in getting you know taking them from kind of the experimental stage to actually running in production. So one of the biggest problems with machine learning is that uh to getting it to generalize, right? So there are lots of long tail events and uh, the data is typically very sparse in your dataset and uh, trying to figure out why that happened what that happened is generally really difficult um so this is one area where i think uh, you have to figure out how to combine uh, machine learning with other techniques uh, in a place where you want to uh, have absolute guarantees in a, you know system like a robot like where there is actually no human intervention uh, in in other areas i think there are some very nice properties if you are doing like a human assist so uh, ml has a very nice property of being able to 
do good enough and let's say you get like some 99 point some number of nines and then the remaining can be like augmented by uh, human intelligence but uh, if you really are trying to do a perfect uh, build a robot where it has to be completely autonomous uh, you have to figure out like additional ways in which you can have some guarantees mm-hmm. and that's that's actually quite challenging of figuring out everything seems challenging <laughs> yeah yeah um awesome thank you so much it was a real pleasure to talk to you <laughs>